And the seven, <clears throat> seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the trees, all of the green grass was burned up. Second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened. And the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked and heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet and of the three angels who are about to sound. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you will give to us ears to hear, hearts that believe, and minds that understand. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified even in such difficult texts as these. That you, Lord, would show us that there is victory, victory in these trumpet blasts. Be glorified, Lord. I decrease that you may increase in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning once again. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John, through the book of Revelation. Uh, we are now beginning a new or second cycle of judgments. Uh, new or second cycle of judgments. They are the seven trumpets. Uh, we have considered the, the holy hush that has come upon the citizens of heaven at the judgment of God, God's judgment upon the wicked <clears throat> and redemption of the righteous has been executed as a result. This is going to be important throughout the sermon as a result of the prayers of the saints, as a result of the prayers of the saints. We've heard about them. We've seen them in John or Revelation chapter six. They are under the altar. They are the saints who pray, O Lord, holy and true. And because they pray in faith, they have every reason to believe that their prayers will be heard and handled according to God's perfect will. And what encouragement we have, brothers and sisters. What encouragement we have to know that when we pray, as our confession says, when we pray in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to his will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, our high priest, Jesus Christ, our only mediator, takes our prayers and adds them to the prayers of the saints who have gone before us. They reach the most holy place, the scriptures will say. Our prayers, when we pray them, when we pray them in that way, 
Our prayers go somewhere. They don't just disappear into thin air. Our prayers, as we've learned, they ascend like the smoke from the incense. They ascend into the most holy place. Our prayers, when they are prayed in faith and when they are prayed full of biblical content, they are a sweet smelling savor in the nostrils, if you will, of our Lord and God. They are pleasing to him. This is how God has decreed that judgment and redemption would come to pass through prayer. So, brothers and sisters, if we are to be anything, we must at least be a praying people. If we are to be anything, we should at least, at the very least, be a people who pray. When we pray, we are not making God do something. When we pray, we are not commanding God either. We are not directing God in prayer. We are not bending God to our will when we pray. Rather, our wills are being bent toward him when we pray. We are a twisted people, brothers and sisters. We are a race of Jacobs, a race of swindlers, a race of tricksters. Jacob, you remember who, throughout his life, God was unraveling, God was untwisting. When we pray, we are being untwisted by God. When we pray according to his will, when we pray in faith, when we pray in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, when we pray prayers of biblical content. One of the brothers asked me last week, uh, when we pray, should our prayers, should they be rich, essentially? Should they be rich in knowledge? Absolutely. I pray that your prayers are, are more biblically based now than they were last year and the year before that each year that you pray you're learning how to pray and how not to pray that when you hear your elders prayer praying or someone else praying that you're being informed also on how to pray your and my will are being being unraveled by God being untwisted by God we are being bent toward his will We are being shaped and fashioned after his will, not our own. So then why has there been silence in heaven? Why has God executed judgment upon the wicked? How has all of this come about? Through prayer. The prayers of the saints have reached or risen and reached the most holy place. And the response, the decreed response of God is final judgment. Verse 5 of chapter 8, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. God has decreed that through prayer, he would bring judgment upon the wicked through prayer. The Lord takes the consuming fire from the altar and throws it in final judgment upon the earth. This is verses 3 through 5. It is final, complete judgment. It is the divine response of God from the prayers of the saints to send judgment to the earth. It's not some preliminary judgment to the final judgment. It is final judgment. Verses 3 through 5. 
verses 3 through 5 hearken back to chapter 6, verses 12 through 17 of final judgment. It is the final trumpet. It is the final blow in those verses. It's important as we move forward, though. Verses 3 through 5 are God's divine answer to the prayers of vindication from the oppressor. Verse 1 explains why there is silence. The great day of the Lord has come. No one can stand as his wrath is being poured out. So a fair question then, as we are moving forward into verses 6 and onward, we are going to be considering these, these seven trumpets. Where do they fit in? If we've seen final judgment in verses 3 through 5, silence is the result of the final judgment that has been executed by God. What, what are these trumpets and where do they fit in? It's important, and these are important notes for you to take, that what's happening right now is a transition. But it is an interlocking transition. Meaning, they, they are not separate from what's taking place. They are flowing and also explaining what's taking place from what? As we learned, maybe last week or the week before, from a different perspective. From a, di- a different vantage point. They're not disconnected. They are absolutely connected. So when you see the seals, don't think... And then, chronologically, here comes new things. Rather, it's the same thing from a different vantage point. The same thing from a different point of view. This is the second cycle of judgments. It's interesting that uh, what we are seeing will be shown again as limited disasters. In the same way that we saw in the seven seals, six seals, that there is a... Actually, five seals. There's a third of something destroyed. A third of something destroyed. A third of something destroyed. We will see the same thing in these trumpets. A third of something will be destroyed, but not completely. Now, we we should say, but I thought verses 3 through 5 were a complete destruction. They were. And now, as we move forward, we'll see the leading up to the complete destruction from a completely different vantage point. Hope that makes sense. Important note. Man will not bring about the end of history. It's not in the power of men to bring about the end. I know that for many of us, we are taking note of what's taking place in Europe. And we are hearing of wars, rumors of World War Three. Many are saying it's going to be the destruction of the entire world. Let me say to you that that is not in the hands of men. Do not fear what you think may be the end coming from the hands of a man, a man or men. Remember that our Lord told us that wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations, kingdoms rising against kingdoms. Those will be things that will happen. But we must not fear that we must not be frightened because the Lord says these things must take place, but they are not the end. Wars of men will not bring about heaven and and earth being rolled up like a scroll. Not men. God will do this. Not men. Not Putin. Not Biden. Not any other uh, leader in the world. Only God will do this. They will war against each other. The Lord said this must happen. But they will not bring about the end. Our Lord said it's when the gospel of the kingdom is preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. 
God brings about the end, not men. God does this. So, with God's help, let us consider the first four trumpets and what God has intended as a warning and also an encouragement for us. There will be four trumpets that we'll be considering, so but we will have five points because I want to, first of all, give us a theology of the trumpets. So let's do this. Number one, a theology or the theology of the trumpets. Verses six or verse six. And the angels, the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. We've already discussed these seven angels, who they are, what we think they are, the trumpets and what they are. But look, they're trumpets now. Let's consider what the trumpets are. What is the meaning of the trumpets? The theology of the trumpets is important. They are trumpets. And, and oftentimes we might say, oh, well, why a trumpet? And then we get into the, the, the nitty gritty, if you will, of the what is rather than why. Today, this, this evening or afternoon, we will partake of the Lord's Supper. And we will focus more so, we, we will be tempted to focus more so on the element than the meaning of the element. So when we're considering the trumpets, don't just consider the, 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 the tool, but consider what the tool is intended to communicate. Yeah? We know God gives John visions that are related to the whole of Revelation. And they are meant to communicate a deep, deeper theological significance. So, what is then the theology of the trumpet throughout the Word of God? Throughout the Word of God. And then we'll get into, now what is it here? In the scriptures, the sound of the trumpet is used to announce the coming of God in splendor and glory. The coming of God in splendor and glory. In Exodus 19, Yahweh, the covenant Lord, descended on Mount Sinai to give Moses his law. And he does so with the blast of the trumpet. And this, this trumpet, it increases in volume and intensity. What a sound. In Numbers 10, we see that there are two trumpets that were fashioned in order to summon Israel to gather as a holy assembly before the Lord at the tent of meeting. The, the trumpets sound, if you will, to call people to come and worship. In Leviticus 25, the blast of the trumpet was sick to signify good news of jubilee. Uh, coming from my background, jubilee is a is a very fun word. But jubilee, it was the year in which those who were in bondage and those who were who were in debt, they were freed from their bondage and they were freed from their debt. The trumpet would blast. In First Kings one, the blast of the trumpet signifies the coronation of a king. One or two more. In Jeremiah 51, the Lord assembled nations to inflict judgment upon Babylon. Babylon is going to be a word I use a lot in this sermon. With the sound of the trumpet. We're told in Matthew 24, the last one, that the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ will be heralded with the final resounding blast of the trumpet. Some have asked, do you think there will be, my wife actually, do you think there will be a literal trumpet that, that sounds as, the, as Christ returns? It's one of those ones that I will say yes to. It's one of those things that I was, yeah, I think there will be a literal trumpet sounding. All of the world will hear it. Yes, I believe so. There are two that are most related to this trumpet blasting in Revelation, though. Uh, the first one is in Joshua chapter six. You don't need to turn there, but seven trumpets were used in the siege of Jericho that sounded the alarm of the terrifying day of the Lord. What was the terrifying day of the Lord? The walls of Jericho will come tumbling down 
and Israel will march. They, they will rush upon the city and overtake the city. That's the terrible day of the Lord for them. Joshua led Israel to the promised land, as you remember. They were immediately confronted with the fortified city of Jericho. God commanded the army of Israel to march around the city wall once for how many days? For six days. With the Ark of the Covenant and with the priests, seven priests, sounding seven trumpets as they marched. On the seventh day, the Israelites were commanded to encircle Jericho seven times. And they were told to, on the last march, the priests, the seven priests were to sound the trumpet. And as they sounded the trumpet, the, the, the company of Israel was to shout alongside with the, the sounding of the trumpet. And when this happened, God caused the walls of Jericho to come tumbling down. Moments like that, as we read and hear of the excitement, say, wow, uh, I long for something like that. I, I want to experience something like that in our day. We, we, we may say, I want to see the walls of tyranny come tumbling down. I want to see the, the walls of false religion come tumbling down. I want to see the walls of injustice come tumbling down. And in Revelation, the seven trumpets held by the seven angels are doing exactly that. The seven trumpets who will blast their seven, or the seven angels who will blast their seven trumpets will do exactly that. They are waiting for their cue, as it were. So just as the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, the walls of Babylon the Great, as Revelation calls it, they will come tumbling down. They will crumble at the sound of the seven trumpets of God. G. G. B. Caird makes this connection between the afflicted ancient Israelites and the seven afflicted churches who are meant to represent the church of all time. He says this, like ancient Jericho, which brought the entry of Israel into the promised land, Babylon the Great must fall before God's people can enter their permanent home in the new Jerusalem. Babylon the Great, we'll talk about what that is as the sermon goes on, but Babylon is keeping people. Disillusioned, tempted, distracted from entering into the kingdom of God and Babylon will fall. The trumpets sound the alarm of God's judgment. It is a sound of the unbelievers demise. And it is the sound of the believers victory. Joel 2, 1 reminded me of a song when I was young. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. There was a song when I was young. That they rush on the cities. They run on the walls. Great is the army that carries out. The Lord utters his voice. You remember? <laughs> The only song I liked growing up. But the saints, the most immediate correspondence, but saints, the most immediate correspondence to this trumpet is this. It's the plagues that were inflicted upon the Egyptians before the exodus of Israel. What was the plagues? What, what were they? They were the plagues that God inflicted upon the oppressors of God's people. 
those who were not allowing Israel. What was the, the request of Moses when he came to Pharaoh? Let my people go, God says, so that they may do what? Worship me. So that they may worship me. That he may bring them into a land. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land that has been given to them. So that they may worship me. And what was the response of Egypt? I will not let them go. Egypt then must fall. Babylon must fall. Jericho must fall. All of those kingdoms and any kingdom that opposes God and his people must fall. So the plagues of Egypt, they were, they come upon Egypt for what? Let me ask you this. Did God bring the plagues upon Egypt so that the Egyptians would repent? Think about it. Did God bring the, the plagues upon Egypt so that Egypt and Pharaoh would repent of their sin? So that they would be softened. See that word? They would be softened. And so that they would uh, turn to God and believe and, and even join Israel to worship them in the desert. Was that God's intention in the plagues? The answer is no. Were the plagues not used by God to actually harden the heart of Pharaoh? So that he would not release the Israelites. And were these hardenings of God not God's opportunity to display his power among both the Egyptians who worship false gods and the Israelites who are being called back to God? Friends, these plagues and signs, I'm going to say this twice in the sermon, they were not intended to woo Pharaoh to repentance. They, they were not intended to uh, call Pharaoh to God. They were intended to, dis- intended to display the absolute omnipotence of Yahweh Elohim. That he is God and that there is no God in Egypt. There is no God in Babylon. There is no God in Jericho. There is only one God over all creation. God was not trying to win Pharaoh's heart. He was doing the exact opposite. He was hardening Pharaoh's heart. He was hardening the hearts of the Egyptians. For those of us who have problems with that, ah, is God like that? Well, God will answer this for you in Romans 9.17. For scripture says to Pharaoh, that is, for God says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name, he says, might be proclaimed throughout the whole world. The, the multiplied signs and plagues that God inflicts upon Pharaoh was not so that Pharaoh would repent, but so that God's power might be put on display throughout the whole world. What is more, uh, these signs and plagues, they are a judgment against the persecuted. Against those who persecute, I should say, the people of Israel. They are a judgment against them. The Lord will say to Moses, I have heard the cry of my people. I have heard the cry of my people. Therefore, he sends his deliverer and his judgment upon the oppressor. The Exodus plagues are a theological model. That's important. They are a theological model for the trumpets of revelation. They, that means this. They theologically instruct us about the purpose of the trumpets. They give us the theological significance about the purpose of the trumpets. Uh, the, the trumpets are actual judgments on the wicked of the earth. And they are warnings for the remnant that judgment is coming. 
Those who believe, they are warnings for you. They are judgments for the unbeliever. The trumpets are limited, though. They do not, at least the first four, they do not utterly destroy. Just as the seal judgments, a third of the earth is destroyed. Now, because of this, because they're not utterly destroyed, some will say, well, then the theological implication is that God is giving room for repentance. That, that God is giving time for repentance. This is usually based upon uh, Revelation 9, 20 and 21. Uh, the scriptures say that the, the unbeliever did not repent. Therefore, the assumption is, well, if the unbeliever did not repent, then God is actually leaving time for unbelievers to repent. That, that the purpose of all of this was so that unbelievers would turn to him. Again, we correspond this with the Exodus plagues. What was the purpose of the Exodus plagues? They were not a missionary journey by God. They were not a missionary effort by God to win Egyptians to himself. God was not softening Pharaoh's heart. He was further calcifying Pharaoh's heart. So then, the seven trumpets, not just literary, but theologically, they are meant to harden the heart of the unbeliever. Not soften it. When the seven trumpets come, those who don't believe will dig further into their unbelief. They won't say the believers were right. They will still shake their fist at God. They will still curse him. Their hearts will be further hardened. Now, Revelation 9 tells us that the wicked will persist in idolatry. Persist in persecuting the righteous. Persist in their hard-heartedness. Will unbelie- Will there be some unbelievers to repent? Yes. But if an unbeliever repents, who are they? They're the remnant of God. They are those whom God has foreloved and foreknown. One is for salvation. The other is for judgment. Will there be some who during these times are saved and who do repent? Yes. As how, as they have always uh, been decreed to be saved. They have always been the ones whom God would save. But God is not intending to save those whom he has determined to judge. That would make no sense. He is determined to judge those and they will be judged. And those who are meant to be saved, they will be saved. Each of these trumpets will find their climax in the last trumpet, which will be the final judgment for the believer, for the unbeliever. It will be for us, the people of God, true Israel, it will be the greater exodus. Exodus was a wonderful deliverance of God's people out of the slavery of Egypt. But we are we are experiencing a greater exodus, a, a greater deliverance. We will escape Babylon. We will enter not a temporary land. We will enter an eternal land, one that we will rest in forever. We will not wander for a time. We will not be like the Egyptians or like the the, the Israelites. We will not be wandering in the desert. Our redeemer, our prophet, our priest, our king. He will set us free and, and lead us safely into the land that he has promised his people. We shall be his people. He shall be our God. I would say to you in in this also, 
do not treat what I've just said as just a, a kind of a well put together point. Maybe it's not well put together, but don't treat it as just a put together point. It's not a fictional point that I'm making. If you are trusting in Christ, it is your final victory. If you are trusting in Christ, then you know that history and even all that we are experiencing in the world is the rapid advance of God's judgment and salvation. Judgment upon the wicked, salvation for the righteous. History is rapidly approaching the final trumpet. Don't treat these things as just he explained to me that explained to me what that means. You are living in this right now. You are a part of this right now. You may come here, hear a 45, maybe 50 minute sermon and then leave and completely forget that when you leave, this doesn't stop. For some of us, it stops between 10 and three o'clock, whatever time you leave. This does not stop. We are heading rapidly toward this final trumpet. Will it be a trumpet blast? My wife says, yes, it will be. Will you be ready for it? I do. I hope so. I hope that you will not be asleep, that you will not be unprepared. Uh, We go on about our our lives as as in the days of Noah. When suddenly. Everything that has been preached over the past few months, especially from this book. Will no longer be fiction to you, it will be nonfiction. Just as the blood on the doorpost was the mark of the people of faith, so God has given us his spirit to mark us as his own so that we will not suffer judgment. To the wicked, take heed. To the righteous, don't be afraid. Rejoice. Emmanuel comes. Rejoice. Babylon, the great, will fall. Now, let's get into the trumpets. These will be very short. Number two, the first trumpet, verse six. Seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first trumpet sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up. Brothers and sisters, you have met, you have heard me mention that, that this is recapitulation of the judgments of God. We've read of these in the seals already. Now we're reading of them from a different vantage point. Now, this, here's, here's the, the difference of the vantage points. In the seal judgments, we were we were reading what the believer must endure when God's judgment comes. And now in the trumpets, we are reading what the unbeliever will experience when God's judgment comes. So in the seals, it's what we will endure, what God will help us to endure. That's why chapter seven comes. That's why chapter seven comes after explaining what we must endure. Chapter seven comes to say, and I will wipe every tear from your eye. And then chapter eight comes and says, there's silence, there's judgment. And here's what the wicked will experience. Sad to say. Here's the sad thing that as I was preparing. The unbeliever outside of the church. Unashamedly refuses to repent. Unashamedly 
uh, pridefully refuses to turn to Christ. And they will be judged. Now listen to this. And sadly, there will be unbelievers inside of the visible church. Those that say they have faith and have repented but have not. Those who say they truly trust in Christ and love him, but they do not. Those who say, I love Jesus, they'll even be faithful in their attendance. But our Lord said, if you love me, you would keep his commands. They will be those who say they love him with their mouths, but their hearts are far from him. They will be those who on that final day will say, Lord, did I not? And did I not? And the Lord will say to them, but I never knew you. And depart from me, you worker of iniquity or you sinner. The unbeliever outside of the church will be judged along with the unbeliever who mingles and hides inside of the church. But it's just for show. It's not real. They're the ones who, they'll come when they need to. They'll come just to get believers to not bug them about where have you been. Let me get even more specific. Maybe I should not. Seven angels with their trumpets mentioned in verse 2. They seem to almost be interrupted. And now in verse 6, it's continued. Those who were standing ready to blow their trumpets have now been commissioned to sound the alarm. And they unleash their perspective or respective afflictions. At the first trumpet, John sees hail, fire mixed with blood, and it is cast to the earth. As part of God's judgment and fire, blood, rain falls down from heaven. Now again, this is patterned after the Egyptian plague. The fire and hail that fell in Exodus chapter 9. The result is consuming one third of the earth, its trees and all green grass, meaning vegetation. Vegetation, smaller trees, including fields, are destroyed or rendered useless. Whereas the plagues of Egypt, they only affect, affected Egypt locally. These plagues, they will touch one third of the earth, but all of the earth will feel it. Now, it's important as we proceed. What kind of book is this? It's a book of symbols. Therefore, this is not meant to be interpreted literally. We should not expect that there will be one day when we walk outside and what we feel is, is water is actually blood dripping from the sky. Rather, it's meant to be understood figuratively. As described in the third horseman who sent harm to the wheat and barley. Revelation 18, fire is used to represent famine. That's the word. In Ezekiel chapter 5, the prophet sees a time when all the grass of the world will be touched by famine. The judgment of Egypt, again, is limited in that flax and barley crops were destroyed by God. But in the final trumpet, or these, the first trumpet, God will send famine, but there will be a boundary to the famine. How will it come? Will literal, literal rain, fire come down? No, it, it will be just that God has not allowed the earth to produce 
vegetation as, as it has normally done. How will that come? Maybe it will come through lack of rain. Which will lead us just a moment into the waters, fresh spring waters in a moment. Maybe it will come through lack of rain. However it will come, grain will be hard to find. The price of food will rise. And this famine will be restricted to a third of the year. Secondly, second trumpet. The second angel sounded and something that's important and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea had in this which were in the sea had died and a third of the ships were destroyed. I typed it wrong. Sorry. The second trumpet continues the judgment. This judgment theme of the first trumpet of famine. It's important to note that John says he sees something like, meaning not literally, but figuratively. He sees something like a mountain burning with fire that's thrown into the sea. Again, reminds us that we are to take this book, not literally, but figuratively. So then what's the meaning of this burning mountain? The mountain, if you follow the pattern in Revelation, is most likely a reference to a kingdom. Most likely a reference to a kingdom. An evil kingdom that is being judged for its wickedness. In Revelation 18.21, a strong angel takes up a stone, throws it into the sea, and immediately interprets his actions by saying this. In this way, or thus, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. So there's this this um, there's this theme of taking something large, throwing it down and it's sinking here in Revelation chapter eight. We see that there's a, a, a huge mountain that's on fire. It's being thrown into the sea and it sinks and will never rise again. God's judgment is against the kingdom of this world, Babylon. Babylon, the great uh, Jeremiah 51, uh, 52. I am against you, O destroying mountain. And I will make you a a burned out mountain, Jeremiah sees. Later in Jeremiah 51, the prophet will declare, blow the trumpet among the nations. Which is a signal to the armies to gather against Israel. Or armies to gather armies of Jerusalem. That will eventually uh, destroy Babylon. Babylon is tied to a great stone in Jeremiah, and it's thrown into the sea. Hopefully I remember something about what the Lord says later. Jeremiah interprets his actions in Jeremiah 51, 63. It says, so shall Babylon sink down and not rise again. Babylon's tied to a stone. Babylon's thrown into the sea. Jeremiah interprets this as this great city, this great kingdom, I should say, sinking and never rising again. So, what is this burning mountain? It's a wicked kingdom. One that exalts itself. Now, listen, here, here we go. It, one that exalts itself. One that seeks glory for itself. One that promotes sin. One that encourages unrighteousness. It's the wicked city of Babylon, the great city, the great kingdom of the world. Now, we might stop and say, but Babylon hasn't existed for over 3,000 years. So, what, what is God seeing here? Babylon is a metaphor for the evil of the world. 
It's a metaphor for the evil of the world. Babylon is not America. Stop there. Babylon is also not China. It's not Russia, not Africa, so on and so forth. It's not one nation. It's all of the evil of all of the world. Those who follow the wicked system of evil. Those who pursue sin. You could be living in America, living in Bakersfield, hopefully not in this church, pursuing evil, and you are a part of Babylon's kingdom. It really is a tale of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Satan's kingdom has been called the kingdom of Babylon, Babylon the Great. And the inhabitants of Babylon are those who pursue sin, who love sin, who exalt sin. And who want nothing of God. The city of God and the city of Babylon. And John has shown a time in which Babylon will come tumbling down. Babylon will be, and its wicked forces, will be thrown into the sea and never rise again. What does our Lord say about those who, who stop little ones from coming to the kingdom of God? It would be better for them to have a stone tied around them and then for them to be thrown into the sea. So it will be for all of those of Babylon, all of those who pursue the wickedness of this evil world. They will be tied to a stone and thrown to the bottom of the sea. There will be a form of disruption. Babylon will not be allowed to thrive. The income by the sea will be eliminated. Merchants will have no nothing to fish for. The fish will be gone. Their uh, industry, their commerce will be severely crippled. Seafarers will mourn because they realize that Babylon's destruction means their own destruction. So it could be that, that there is uh, famine on the ground because rain is not coming. And that the waters have become polluted, which we'll talk about in a moment, by Wormwood, so that... Both commerce are suffering. It will be limited, but it will be felt around the world. There is now the third trumpet, verses, verses 8 through 11. When the third trumpet comes, famine appears to continue, and it's again an allusion to Exodus chapter 7, verses 15 to 24. This is the, the rivers and springs of water are turned bitter. The second trumpet, something like a burning mountain is thrown. Now in the third trumpet, something like a great star burning with a torch, like a torch is thrown down to the earth. And it has a name. It's called wormwood. Wormwood is a bitter herb. It's a bitter herb. And water can be contaminated by it and even make it poisonous if it's drunk over a period of time. Wormwood. If this is a continuation of the similar judgment of the first two trumpets, then fire can be understood to be a metaphor of famine in the water. Famine in the water. One third of fresh water sources, rivers and springs are made bitter and anyone who drinks of them could be could be killed. Well, it could be that there is drought from rain. We are looking for water, so we go to springs and in going to springs. We find that we are poisoned by the waters. 
Now, we might say, what, what could come flying down from the sky? Uh, what's something burning that could come flying down from the sky? Then, if you read, if you listen to some of the interpreters today, they, they might say, God is speaking about an atomic bomb or some kind of chemical weapon, and that's how everything's polluted. That's how there's famine, and that's how the waters are polluted, and that's why uh, no one on the sea can do any work. Brothers and sisters, let's not, in order to, to make sense of these things, interpret these things in light of our modern technology. Meaning, let's not look around and say, what do we know of today that will make sense of that which John is speaking of? Let me help you out. John is not seeing an atomic bomb. Uh, as we move forward, John's not also going to see Apache helicopters or armored tanks. None of those things are, are things that John sees in Revelation. These visions are not from John's head. They are communicated to him. But John must then communicate what he sees. He does so through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he does so with, with what he understands. Nothing of our modern technology would have been in John's mind. And if it was, then how would this be helpful for the saints for over 2,000 years until the 20th century? No saint would be encouraged. No saint would, would, would make sense of these things until they come to the 20th century, 20th and 21st century. So then how is water polluted? That's the theological, or that's the that's the the what that we're we're saying. Don't focus on that because the answer to that question of how is is water polluted is this. I don't know. I don't know how water is polluted. I don't know how the the trees and and the grass and all of these things become famished or uh, famished. I don't know. But the why is the more important question. The why is the more important question. Why is water polluted? Why is there famine? This judgment finds its Old Testament reference in Jeremiah 9 and Jeremiah 23, which both affirm that God will feed them, Israel, with wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink. But why? Why is God poisoning Israel? This judgment of polluted water comes because the religious leaders of Israel spiritually polluted the nation with idolatry. Why has pollution come? Because the leaders are polluted. And so as the leaders are polluted, so the nation will be polluted. Therefore, the judgment fits the crime. Because the polluted Israel's uh, leaders of Israel have so polluted the people of Israel, God will pollute them with bitterness of suffering. They will have no water to drink. And when they ask why, why are, is there no good water to drink? The evidence will eventually lead to their polluted leaders who have not led people, the people of God in the way of God. Over and over again in the Old Testament, Wormwood is not the only place where we find, Revelation is not the only place where we find Wormwood. It's throughout the Old Testament. And each time it's meant to communicate severe suffering and each time it is connected to idolatry. Bitterness because of idolatry. In the last days, Babylon has seduced those who dwell on the earth, even some in the visible church. 
seduced them into idolatry of, of a variety of kinds. What do you worship right now? What's uppermost in your heart right now? What can, what can you not wait to get back to once you leave this place? Or can you say about this place, I have nowhere else to go. There is nothing else I want to do. There is nowhere else I want to be. You could say, I can't wait until whatever time so that I can go back to. Dear friend, I, by the authority of God's word, warn you that there is an idol in your heart. That I don't want you to fall with when God's judgment comes. Every idol will be brought down. Every wicked kingdom will be brought down. And those who serve and worship and who would rather be in that kingdom will be brought down as well. You're drinking freely now. Babylon drinks freely now. Babylon believes she has no worries. She's eating well. She's drinking well. But there will be a time when there will be no food and no drink. Her rejoicing in pagan worship and idolatry will end. Babylon will fall. What kingdom do you belong to? Fourth and finally. Fourth judgment, verse 12. We won't consider verse 13 today. The fourth judgment continues. Trumpet continues. And the theme of woe from the preceding trumpets. This time not a famine. This time it's the sun and the moon and the stars. They are all afflicted. So that light is diminished. And the darkness of the night grows darker still. Similar to the final seal judgment where the sun is made black, the moon is covered, the stars fall. The only difference is that there's a partial nature to it. My wife, the other day, uh, we were outside and we saw a few stars and she took a picture. And then she went inside and she began to edit that picture. She began to remove haze from the picture. And what seemed to be just about 10 stars above our head turned out to be more stars that I could count directly above us. There will be a time when those stars will not be blocked by haze, but will be eliminated. They will not shine. There will be no editing tricks to bring them up. They will be gone. The plague of darkness that came upon Egypt for three days and three nights was an indictment against Egypt for their false gods. The plague of darkness was an indictment against Egypt because they, they believed that they had the very incarnation of the God of Sun as their leader, Pharaoh. They believed that Pharaoh was the incarnation of Ra. And so they had a God among them, they believed. So God comes with this plague of judgment and says, tell your God, to make the sun shine. Tell your God, where's the sun now? Tell your God of the sun. 
If you have power over the light, then you say, let there be light. And there was only darkness. There was a three-day limit to the the darkness. And there will be a limited effect of darkness in this fourth trumpet. It will be the third of the sun, third of the moon, third of the stars will be affected, it it says. Darkness comes upon Egypt for their hard oppression of Israel. And darkness will come upon Babylon. Who has oppressed and persecuted the church, the true people of God. There will be wars, shortage of grain, fruit, fresh water, and even light will be all in short supply. Verse 13, the eagle will will introduce, he will say, it's bad, the eagle will say, it's about to get worse. Now, how do we end this sermon? The unbeliever will suffer. The idolater will suffer. What should we do as we are awaiting the final judgment, the final trumpet? We should be diligent in our evangelism. We should be diligent in calling out those who are citizens now of the kingdom of Babylon. Call them into the kingdom of Christ while there is still time. While today is still today, while there is still light, because there will be a time when there when there will be no more light. Call them to Christ, call them to repentance and faith. I think that as we've gone through this letter, this book. We've said this over and over again, it has been a consistent admonition. Call your unbelieving friends, family members and neighbors, call them to Christ. But what about for the believer? This should cause us to call, to ask God, Lord God, please examine my heart. I don't want to be one who simply says with my mouth that I love you, but in my heart, I'm far from you. I don't want to be one who says that I love God, but in secret, I forsake his commands. I don't want to be one who simply makes a physical appearance before the church. But God knows I'm not really here. Ask God to examine your heart. Ask God. Lord, help me to walk in the way of righteousness. Let fruit pour out of my life so that I know I am truly one of yours. Help me to forsake the kingdom of Babylon with all of its temptations, with all all of its allurements. Babylon's calling you young people. Babylon has its, its, its focus on you. Yes, the older ones too. But the older ones are nowadays, they are, they're commending the younger ones for their free thoughts. For their free pursuits of sin. 
Let me say to you, young person, and even older person, whatever age you are, you will find no satisfaction in the end. It will be temporary. It will be short-lived. And at the very end, you will spend an eternity regretting, maybe, regretting your rebellion against God. I say maybe. It may be that in, in, in after judgment that the wicked will still curse God. Also remember this, saints. We are going to suffer. We will not be freed from tribulation. When, as tribulation is, we are experiencing tribulation, we will experience it in in an, in an intensified manner. It will increase. In this world, you will have trouble, but fear not. The Lord says that He has overcome the world. When tribulation comes, it's not so that your hearts can be hardened. It's so that your hearts can be strengthened. It's not so that you can curse God in the days of famine or in the days of of drought. But rather it's so that your faith can be refined. While Egypt claimed to worship the incarnated God of the Son, we actually do worship the the Son of God. The eternal Son of God. We worship the the true Son. And He has liberated us so that we can rejoice that though we may live through trouble, we may live through a time when the sun and the moon and stars are darkened. The light of the Son of God never grows dim. And we are in Him. And He has given us light. Light not so that we can hide our light, but so that we can share our light. We've heard troubling things today, haven't we? But hear this from our Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. He says, believe in God. You believe in God, he says, believe also in me. Believe in the Spirit. And you will not be lost. Let us also be mindful that the falling of Babylon, it's directly connected to the prayers of the saints. Why is Babylon falling? Because the saints are praying. When we are hearing of this devastation, it's not devastating for us. We've heard of these troubling things. It's not troubling for us. It's victory for us. It's joy for us because we want Babylon to fall. We heard of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. And we said, we want to see walls of injustice fall. We want to see walls of false religions fall. As we pray, Babylon will fall. We are not discouraged when we hear of the destruction of the false kingdom of this world. No, because as this false kingdom falls, the kingdom of God rises even higher. And we want this. It's what we're praying for. God has decreed that through the prayers of his people, that he would hear their cry and deliver us and display that he is holy, that he is true, that he is just. Christ, our mediator has approached the golden altar. And where are we? We are under the altar. And we are offering up prayers. The prayers of the saints are rising. And our Christ has taken those prayers. And he is executing judgment upon the wicked. Vindication for the righteous. So know, dear saints, 
As we come to the end of this sermon and go, wow, that was heavy. No, it should be it should be victorious. It should be victorious. What are you going to eat? Is the body not more than food? What am I going to drink? Is the, is the body not more than drink? I'm looking forward to the new body that Christ will give us. In the new Jerusalem. Our prayers directed to the one true God. Pray to the Father in the name of the Son, by the power of the Spirit. We'd offer to him all of these prayers. And they are a sweet smelling savor to God. And he responds accordingly. He seals his people with his spirit. The gospel goes forth to those whom he has loved with an everlasting love. Those whom, whom God is calling to trust in him. He will preserve them through tribulation. And Babylon will fall. All the kingdoms that set themselves up against God will fall. None will be able to stand. None will be able to oppose him. Russia will fall. America will fall. Be careful. Those who are part in those countries of the wicked system. You're like, wow. Those who are part of the, the wicked system in those countries, they will fall. And Christ will be raised even higher. And we will stand with him. Christ has been raised. We shall be raised. Christ has stood. We shall stand. And it is a victorious posture, isn't it? They are not terrible to us. They are victory for us. And to God be the glory. For the bringing down of the false kingdom of Babylon. There is only one kingdom. Only one citizenship that matters. The kingdom of God and our citizenship in heaven. Let us continue to pray. His kingdom come. His will be done. Let's pray.